right. Well, welcome everyone. Uh, my name is Sean Watterson. I'm one of the owners at the Happy Dog. Um, unfortunately, we can't be at the Happy Dog right now, although I do have a picture um, for everyone's benefit. I want to thank everyone, uh, especially our partners in this series, Happy Dog Takes on the World. Um, this would not be possible without our incredible partners at the City Club, Cleveland Council on World Affairs, International Partners in Mission, the Northeast Ohio Consortium for Middle East Studies, and our media partner, MediaStream. Before I kick it over to our, uh, our incredible Tony Ganser as moderator, I do have one appeal to make. Um, as you know, the Happy Dog is still closed, uh, and we are going to be closed until it is safe to come back. We were among the first to close and will be among the last to open. Um, we are advocating at the federal level and the local level for assistance for our businesses and for our employees. Um, we are asking folks, there is a new campaign called Save Our Stages uh, that launched uh, today. Uh, so we are asking that you go to saveourstages.com uh, after the talk uh, or in a separate tab and, um, and add your voice to support for the Restart Act. There are two bills, one in the Senate and one in the House, that would help uh, both the businesses and the employees at our businesses um, so that we can come back together and do this in person sometime soon. So with that appeal, I am going to now turn it over to uh, Tony Ganser, our wonderful moderator. Thanks, everyone. Get a little bit of gong sound there. Hello, and welcome to our second virtual Happy Dog Takes on the World. I am Tony Ganser, host and producer for 90.3 WCPN IdeaStream, the public media enterprise in uh, Northeast Ohio. I'm also in one of Ohio's red alert counties. That is the third most severe public health emergency level out of four. And starting tomorrow, we will actually have a mask requirement here. But masks alone cannot fight this pandemic. As cases of COVID-19 surge in many places around the globe, many countries are piloting sophisticated contact tracing and surveillance programs in an attempt to contain these outbreaks. Security camera footage, smartphone monitoring, facial recognition technologies, along with mobile apps, they're all being deployed in various ways in different countries. Now, proponents of these efforts laud their ability to help countries track COVID-19 cases effectively. They keep death tolls low, the argument goes, and provide information necessary to make decisions about when to safely reopen businesses, schools, travel, remember all of those things. But the use of these technologies also pose serious legal and ethical challenges um, regarding civil liberties, individual privacy, data collection, security. Today, we'll talk with a panel of experts about how we navigate the boundaries between public health and privacy, ethics and legality during the pandemic, or at least try to wrap our heads around it. Before we do get into this conversation, I do want to thank the City Club's generous members, sponsors and donors who do support our forums. Uh, you can find a full list at cityclub.org slash thank you. 
You can join them in supporting their work by making a contribution, maybe becoming a member of cityclub.org or your NPR member station. As in every City Club forum, you can also participate with your questions, and we do uh, want your questions. That's an important part of this, especially a virtual forum. You can text them 330-541-5794. You can see it on the screen, 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them at the City Club. We will work them in. And by we, I mean me. I will try to work them in as best I can uh, throughout our conversation. Uh, so uh, now to our panel. Uh, tonight, I am joined by Ariel Fox Johnson. Senior Counsel for Policy and Privacy for Common Sense Media. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Also with us, Brian Ray, Director of the Center for Cybersecurity and Privacy Protection at the Cleveland Marshall College of Law. Thanks so much for being here, Brian. It's a pleasure, Tony. And we do have a third panelist. Uh, maybe he will come at some point. Uh, Robert Ekman, Chief Information Security Officer for Kent State uh, University. But we will kick off. The show must go on. And I, I just want to open it up at the very beginning here to both of you. Maybe Brian Stard. Um, what are you feeling right now in this pandemic as it pertains to tech and as it pertains to contact tracing apps, which we hear so much about, but... Just what are your first thoughts? Sure. Um, so what's interesting and actually what's great about the fact that we had to delay this a little bit is we're starting to now see some of the initial excitement over the promise of this technology to settle out a bit and more realistic expectations to emerge. And I, and I think it, it would help to, to level set a bit and just explain two, two things briefly. One, contact tracing in general uh, and then what these apps look like. And, and so most people by now have heard the term contact tracing. It was a term I didn't know until uh, several months ago when I started paying attention to these technologies. But in brief, contact tracing is a well-established public health tool to help um, mitigate and then eventually stop the spread of infectious disease. And it's a manual process. It's very time and labor intensive. And it involves essentially interviewing someone who comes in or comes in, uh, is tested positive for a particular disease, and then trying to, uh, through an extensive interview, try figure out where they know they've been, who they know they've been in contact to, with, and others who they may have come into contact with given their regular uh, routines. And, and then to contact those individuals and ask them, um, to get tested and or to quarantine themselves for a particular period of time. It's usually 14 days in the context of COVID-19 so that they um, don't further spread the disease. And so if you do that quickly enough, um, you can begin to then stop the spread. And one of the real challenges with COVID-19 is that we know it is very likely people are spreading it even before they have symptoms. And so even before they know to get tested and before uh, they can become identified uh, by public health authorities. And so that's one of the reasons that we saw um, an early effort to try to put together technologies using cell phones in particular that might allow for much, um, much quicker identification of people who could have been in contact 
with people who ultimately test positive so that we could get ahead and and more rapidly than manual contact tracing typically does get those people to quarantine uh, and or get tested and so to stop that that spread by um, getting individuals to self quarantine and this of course is critical as we well as we attempt to to stop the the new spread or the continued spread as we reopen, uh, because if you can identify hotspots very quickly, um, then you don't have to shut down the whole economy. You don't have to shut down whole areas. You can just get individuals who are most likely to have come in contact with people uh, who were infectious to um, self-quarantine. And, and so that was the promise of these applications. Uh, as it's turned out, for a variety of reasons, um, especially in the United States, they really haven't been adopted widely. Um, and it looks fairly unlikely that in the United States, we're gonna see widespread adoption. And we can get into those reasons uh, a bit later, but from my perspective, uh, part of the reason is that while privacy has emerged and been part of the conversation from the beginning, uh, in some respects at least, there's been a um, somewhat of a uh, an, an over, well, there's been some steps taken, particularly by Apple and Google. I'm going to single them out and we'll talk about them in a minute. Um, they, they've gone a little too far towards protecting privacy in ways that sacrifice the utility of these apps for contact tracing. And the reason I say that is contact tracing itself is a deeply intrusive um, exercise, but a necessary one. Um, individuals contact in, uh, others and ask them very intimate details about where they've been who they've seen, um, and there's a there's a compact there and an expectation and a set of norms in the public health sphere that protects the, the privacy of that information. Uh, and these apps, if they're structured properly, can um, adhere to those same norms and protect privacy um, in, in the same kinds of ways, uh, but because of somewhat of an outsized concern about their potential use for mass surveillance outside of public health, uh, we've ratcheted them down, or at least Apple and Google have in their version. Uh, so I'll stop there for now and let Ariel um, give her perspective, and we can circle back to some more details later. Sure. Thanks, Brian. Um, so I'm not, I, I agree that some of the shine has gone out of of contact tracing apps for the, the public, though, may disagree slightly you know, as to the reason. So I work at Common Sense Media and we're the nation's leading nonprofit dedicated to helping kids and families thrive in an increasingly digital world. So we're committed to making sure every family um, can survive and hopefully thrive as we're ever more reliant on technology as we have been these last couple months. And from our perspective, there are a lot of questions remaining with contact tracing apps, and not just if sort of they're they're overly protective of privacy right now. You know, we feel like any use of these apps needs to be voluntary for individuals. Uh, any rollout of this technology has to require clear privacy and security safeguards. You know, data that people give up to help fight the pandemic should not be used in other contexts. These apps also should not be seen as a silver bullet. And I'm worried that that's how people saw them a couple months ago, especially sort of uh, cash-strapped government budgets. They can't replace robust human tracing and they require a lot of testing capabilities to be used in conjunction with the apps in order for them to be effective. If people aren't getting tested or aren't able to get tested, it, it doesn't matter that they've downloaded an app. Also, we have real concerns that these apps may fail precisely those communities who need them most, 
um, the elderly, lower income communities, communities of color, those with less access to technology and digital literacy, you know, may be less likely or less able to download these apps. And so they could be sort of underrepresented in terms of, of tracking and tracing. So from my perspective, there's still a ton of questions about these apps that haven't been answered before I'm going to go download one or tell people I know to go download them. That's really uh, interesting to hear. And I'm sure we'll get to uh, more specific examples from abroad in comparisons uh, a little bit later. But having worked in Switzerland, a lot of my contacts are still in Switzerland. And the initial response over there, some of the social media pushes I saw, at least from the Swiss, uh, was do your civic duty and download the app. Uh, you know, do do your civic duty and and give the information to whomever would want it. And it seems an American response is is not that necessarily. It's what are you going to do with my data? Um, it, it, do you think that's a fair characterization, uh, Brian, about just American skepticism over technology like this uh, from the first from the first step, even before we actually know what the app's going to do? So I, I, I think that's half of the story. And what's interesting is, is what we're seeing and, and what's fantastic about what we're seeing is privacy is very much in the mix of the conversation here. And um, the major tech companies that are developing these apps are thinking carefully about privacy from the start, uh, which they, they haven't been doing. And um, you know there are many, many apps that we all download to do a variety of things. Um, that are, are gathering tons of data. And what's what's interesting is Apple and Google have taken direct responsibility for the how these apps in particular are structured in ways that they haven't. Um, and in fact, they've expressly, um, for the most part, uh, sort of been hands off with respect to apps that they put in, the, in regular consumer apps in their store. And so that's part of the what, what I see as, as the interesting conundrum here. The other half of the story is, um, Americans are have a long history of being distrustful of government, and so um, you know the the reaction and the skepticism of the apps is sort of part and parcel of that continuum of responses uh, that includes resistance to things like masks uh, and resistance to, to the shutdown altogether. And so I don't think it's necessarily the technology, although the technology and the increasing salience and awareness of uh, the privacy issues that applications like this um, can create uh, adds maybe an additional dimension to this. But I think it's part and parcel of that broader resistance where we're seeing, you know, much greater compliance with basic public health measures in other countries um, than we are in the United States. It seems uh, legislatively there have been some moves toward addressing some of these concerns. Uh, there is the Exposure Notification Privacy Act, I, I believe, a bill sponsored by Senators Maria Cantwell of Washington, Amy Klobuchar of uh, Minnesota, among others. Um, Ariel, do you think that uh, we are paying close enough attention to the issues that you enumerated at the top? Um, and that are so embedded in using these apps? Does it look like uh, we are prepared to deal with them within our laws and, and even public discussion to some degree? So I think we're definitely seeing them, these principles being discussed in public discussions. And we also see them uh, come, into, come into play in some of these legislative proposals as someone who watches federal privacy legislation pretty closely I am not holding my breath that 
any of this will make it into actual laws, um, particularly in Washington, D.C. Um, but we do see concerns um, from, from this bill and from other bills that have been introduced. The, there was a Senate Commerce Bill, the Consumer Data Protection Act of 2020, um, another bi uh, bicameral bill, the Public Health Emergency Privacy Act, that are trying to put in safeguards. So trying to say in various ways, you can't use this data for other purposes, or maybe you can't do it unless you get certain consent from the consumer. Um, there's a limit to how much you can be forced to give up this data, though there are some exceptions, like some bills would say an em employer couldn't force you to, to do it, others would maybe exempt employers. Um, questions about discrimination, what's gonna happen to me if I don't download this app? In some of these, we see um, protections for say, like you can't require this as a condition of voting. Um, so these principles are being thought about. I, again, I wouldn't say any of them are sort of fully fleshed out or that I'm convinced that they will they will go into to law um, anytime soon, unfortunately. And also at the state level, people are thinking about this. And in New York and in California, they're, they're trying to at least introduce measures and maybe those will go farther. Um, in terms of actually passing that would uh, protect employees or protect students or protect citizens from sort of overreach, um, even though they might wanna encourage downloading of these apps. I think it's also important to have these safeguards in place because then people will be more likely to download the apps and will be more likely to, to trust that their data will be used responsibly. Uh, Ariel, uh, this question is for you first, and then Brian, maybe you respond too. But what one of the things I think about uh, right away. From the European context, we have the GDPR, which is supposed to be an acknowledgement uh, that some data from you is being collected. That's the thing you just click without reading if you go to a European website. At least I've been doing that. Uh, but also the the terms of service for so many things. Uh, how many times does uh, Apple update your operating system and you just click, yeah, agree? Um, what is preventing uh, data collection and tracing from being built into things that already exist? Is it just the potential for public backlash um, or against these companies? Ariel, maybe you want to start and then Brian? Yeah, I guess I would say in, in general in the U.S., there's nothing really preventing um, at a national level um, employers or companies from, from building these in um, to things that already exist, uh, except that they would have to update their privacy policies and their notices to individuals. And maybe as long as it wasn't retroactive, that would probably fly in terms of the US because it's primarily still notice and consent. So if, in, if my uh, Uber Eats decided it wanted to start uh, tracking me and, and using some sort of tracking technology to, to see how close I got to other people, maybe I'd have to tell my phone that it could use my Bluetooth but and it'd have to update its privacy policy and tell me about that. But otherwise there would be very few restrictions for you know adults across the country. Yeah, Brian? Tony, that, that's a great question. And it, it it's a nice segue to, to talk a little bit more about the details of some of these apps. And so I, I've referenced a couple of times uh, the Apple Google um, application. It's, it's not actually application. What Apple and Google did is agreed to create a shared protocol, an API as they call it, that would um, be part of an update 
to each of their operating systems, the iOS on Apple and uh, the Android system on Google. And what that update did recently is enabled those phones to share Bluetooth signals in a way that they hadn't been able to do prior to that. And then allowed um, applications to be built that would use that API, use that capability under either system um, to do what they've, they've now dubbed exposure notification uh, or what many people were calling um, proximity tracing to distinguish it from actual contact tracing. And the difference is what the capability allows for is if you um, down, download one of the apps and Apple and Google have imposed appropriately some very, um, very strict requirements around consent, um, you know, very clearly uh, stated consent and, and just downloading the app isn't gonna be good enough. And when you download, you have to consent to the possibility that this uh, capability could be used, and then you actually have to consent to turn it on. But what it allows to do uniquely, which Apple currently uh, does not allow any app to do, is allow the Bluetooth to run in the background, even when the app isn't, uh, once it's turned on initially, um, so that whenever you're outside and your phone is on, you're sending out what they delightfully refer to as chirps. And if another uh, person with either an Android or Google or Apple phone has the same application and has it consented to turn on and send and receive chirps, then the application is collecting those chirps and storing them on the phone. Uh, the, the identifications are rotating anonymized Bluetooth um, identifier, so just a string of characters uh, that changes uh, every so often so that you can't identify directly who the person is that you've received the chirp from. But what, what happens in theory, at least, is once you test positive, again, if you consent again uh, to share that data, it will then get uploaded all the, the anonymized uh, chirps you received during a particular period that's identified by an algorithm, um, both only the chirps that you get within a certain distance for a certain time of a person as as registered by the Bluetooth signal. And then those people, if they're using the app, will get notif automatic notifications that, hey, you may have been in contact with someone who tested positive for COVID-19, and then some kind of instruction would be attached to that. And Apple and Google have limited these apps to, one, to a single one per jurisdiction, which in the US means per state, probably. Uh, and have required that a public health authority um, either create the app or be the official sort of sponsor of that single uh, application. And so um, the, the advantages of that approach are that the Bluetooth signal is the sort of least um, identifiable of the various approaches that were out there originally because of the fact it doesn't tell you where you are and it doesn't directly tell you who you were in contact with or who, um, who you were in contact with that was that I that um, turned out to be positive, uh, and so you can, in theory, if it works well and if enough people adopt the app, begin to sort of proactively, without the intervention of public health authorities directly, have people self-identify that they may, that they ought to go get tested or do something else. Uh, the limitation of that approach is that it only works prospectively. It only works if um, it, going forward, once you're once you've turned it on, and once other people are using it, and, and enough people in a particular region are using it, so that you you have enough people who um, are walking around and interacting, and might uh, figure out and collect these chirps. Um, the other system that's out there uh, that's app based is to is one that collects GPS data, 
Um, and the, the the most prominent one in the U.S. is one called Safe Paths that was uh, created by an MIT group. And, and the the privacy issues there are more uh, significant because GPS data obviously tells specific locations and much easier to connect it back to individuals and, and locations are obviously sensitive anyways. Um, but the advantages of that approach are that it works from individual one. If I download the app uh, and I have it running for two weeks and then I d have symptoms and I go test positive, even if no one around me had the app and so I wasn't collecting other potential information from them, um, it can help me uh, do the job of contact tracing or help the public health authority do that job because I can give them that data. Uh, and then, you know, they would protect it in the same way that they would protect the data that I'm providing them orally by answering their interview questions. And it just provides an extra uh, layer of confidence and, and can jog the memory uh, in that respect. Now, it's important to note that neither of those options currently um, have any widespread adoption in the United States. I think three states said that they are considering using the Apple Google um, um, capability in developing apps um, and none so far, although I, I do actually there's one county um, in one state that is is considering piloting and, and starting to roll out the uh, the safe pass app. We do have a, a few questions. I'll ask one here related to what we were talking about here. How long is Apple or Google or anyone, how long have they been developing these apps, uh, keeping the data, whether from Bluetooth or GPS? Uh, also, how do we know that they're not using it for other purposes, uh, maybe to, to target more Google ads at us or something? Uh, and who is holding them accountable, if anybody? Uh, Ariel, maybe you want to jump in first and then Brian? Sure, those and those are those are great questions. Um, to start with the last one, you know, right now, really, no one but public opinion is holding them accountable, and that's a problem. You know, I think from a consumer advocate perspective, that what Google and Apple are doing here, um, and as Brian's described, you know, using Bluetooth, keeping a lot of data on the device, sending randomized signals, those are all very privacy protective steps. Um, that they're taking. They're taking these sort of voluntarily because there's there's no one requiring them uh, to take those steps. And that's, you know, a bit of a concern because who knows if or when um, they could they could change their mind. And I think, I thought it was an Apple, Google sort of type app, but maybe I'm wrong. Uh, North Dakota was one of the first states to start rolling out some contact tracing apps and there it said it wouldn't share your location with anyone. Actually, it was sharing location data, so it must have been doing doing more than Bluetooth. But it said in its privacy policy, it wasn't sharing location data. And shortly after launch, they said, oops, we're, we were inadvertently sharing location data with Foursquare, which uses location data for advertising. And they, they promised that none of it had been used for that reason. But it's a little distressing that the sort of first app like this to get rolled out can't even follow what it sets up for itself as its own rules. So um, what's what's interesting about Apple and Google, and, and just to be clear, what they have done, and Ariel's, Ariel's absolutely correct that they could change their minds um, and they aren't required to do this. But what they've done from the start is they don't touch the data at all, uh, and they've and, and they're not they're not in the biz they're not collecting any data. They're not even creating uh, the applications. They've just created the capability for private developers. Um, to build applications that would collect these Bluetooth information. Uh, part of their um, requirements 
don't permit those applications to collect any other data uh, or to share that data except with a public health authority. And so, um, and, and this is remarkable because as Ario pointed out, that's just not what we've, you know, we've, we've come to expect. And, and uh, we've, you know, we very justifiably are skeptical of the, the tech developers because typically they just allow any capability they create to be used in a variety of ways, including to collect consumer data and sell it in all sorts of uh, ways that we, we often don't recognize or know about. But here they've locked it down and they've locked it down in, 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 in some ways that are making it less useful uh, for the contract tracing operation because the protocol that they've created actually won't help contact tracing per se because it doesn't provide any information that public health authorities need. It just augments that process by allowing if enough users download the applications that get created, it allows a kind of parallel self-propagating process that would potentially um, outside of the, the manual contact tracing process, allow for people to self-identify that they've been exposed. But remarkably so far, they've completely locked it down. They don't touch the data. The data has to stay on the, on the user's phone. The user has to consent to download the app, has to consent to turn it on and leave it on, and then has to consent again uh, to provide it to public health authority. And, it's, and the app developers are only allowed to create the capability to share with the public health authority. And that all has to be wrapped up into a public health authority being the sponsor. And so what's interesting is it does, it does far less than what manual contact tracing does in terms of collecting private data, um, which is, a, again, a very good thing. Um, but um, there are many out there, many, many developers of, um, and, and many of these were nonprofits that started up very early on, who were trying to develop applications that could directly supplement contact tracing uh, with GPS. And again, uh, at least from my perspective, you could put in that, and, and, and I'm not alone in this, by the way, uh, Johns Hopkins University uh, put together a, a, a group of interdisciplinary experts and in a very rapid speed came out with a book on digital contact tracing, uh, which one of their top recommendations is that the, there ought to be very significant privacy protections that essentially locks things down the way Apple and Google do at the outset, but users ought to have the capability um, to further share and do more if they decide uh, it's in their in own or in the in the public's interest. Um, now, they also raise the same, some of the same concerns that Ariel raised, which is that we, we really shouldn't allow this to be a distraction from the core effort of manual contact tracing because A, it's gonna leave out a lot of people who don't have access to these and B, they just might not work anyways. So those, to my mind, is where we ought to focus our, our attention and energy. Uh, but as the, use, as the question uh, suggests, there's a kind of outsized concern about the apps, at least in the context of the United States. You mentioned at the beginning other countries where a whole host of, of um, much more intrusive technologies are being uh, put together to do things um, involuntarily to track people. But we're not even close to that here in the United States. I do want to remind viewers that uh, you can ask your questions, and we do have some coming in. You can text your question to 330-541-5794, or you can go to Twitter at The City Club. Uh, you leave a comment somewhere, it'll make it to me through a series of levers and tubes. Somehow it'll make it to my screen. Uh, so happy to have your questions. Uh, before we get to uh, two questions that I have on my screen, I do want to ask about this anonymizing of data because uh, 
Brian, maybe first, uh, I hope you'll remember this vague uh, story that, that I'm recalling, that there was a data dump of cell phone data, um, and researchers were able to trace White House staffers and also CIA staffers based on data which was not supposed to be tied to a person per se, but they could recreate data blocks and essentially they saw a person's day and and they had gps pings based on cell phone towers ariel you're nodding maybe you want to start uh with this do you remember uh what i'm what i'm vaguely recalling well i don't know if i'm remembering the specific article you're recalling but i know they've also done them you know in new york where they can track people about their entire day and that's a that's a problem with gps and location data because if you can see everywhere that someone pings over an amount of uh time especially in more sparsely populated areas, uh, it's it's usually pretty easy to identify them. And in, in general, uh, anonymous data is, is often re-identifiable if the appropriate safeguards aren't in place. And I think that's, you know, one key reason that Bluetooth is sort of a better, the Bluetooth phone-to-phone -phone communication is a more privacy-protective way to uh, do a proximity tracing app than to just, you know, collect my, quote, anonymized location data over over time and, and store that on a centralized server somewhere that's, you know, hackable. Just remember when they showed all the maps of people coming back from spring break, a lot of people were in spring break in Florida. And then, you know, you could see sort of where they went back to Ohio and other places in the Midwest. Um, and if you drill down far enough, you could sort of start to figure out who those people are. Brian, yeah, and, is, is Bluetooth enough of a, a fortification against that, uh, you know, recreation of where a person was, even with the chirps? So, so re, as Ariel pointed out, re-identification re is always an issue and, and one of the bigger, biggest concerns. Uh, and no question, GPS, because it's, it's identifying locations and depending on the number of people and, and you know, how, how much data um, you're, you're putting together, it, it's really easy. Or much easier. Whereas the Bluetooth, because it masks location, it, it's still possible. Uh, and there, there's some really good researchers who've demonstrated, you know, how you would re recreate um, or how you could identify. And there's a variety of attacks out there, including taking a Bluetooth antenna and sort of, you know, driving down, uh, you know, a particular area. So you you get you grab enough of these, and then you, um, you, you know, you spoof the fact that you've been identified and collect enough. Uh, but it's much harder. Uh, but but I want to circle back to 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 the context we're talking about here. We're talking about contact tracing, and as I mentioned at the at the top, what is contact tracing? Well, contact tracing is you've been infected, and for the public good, the public health authority is calling you and saying, "Hey, please, you know, talk to us and tell us. We need to know lots and lots of things about where you've been, who you've been in contact with, and all of that is deeply personal, specific." Uh, identifiable information. And, and the stuff that the contact tracing apps, um, at least if they're structured properly, is just funneling a, a similar set of very private information to a public health authority. And so from my perspective, what we're talking about here is, do we trust the public health authority or not? Uh, and unfortunately, in the United States, we're seeing a, a lot of instances where we don't. And part of that is a kind of bleed over of the legitimate skepticism about applications into um, 
the public health context. And that's turning out to be a real problem. There's there's been a, there were a number of news stories. I think there was one this morning in the New York Times about a community in New York. Uh, they ended up subpoenaing um, a number of, of college students who were at a very large party, which turned out to be a, a huge hotspot. And they're concerned of, and they wouldn't they wouldn't talk to the authorities because they weren't supposed to be having the party. Um, and, and now I don't know that that that's an appropriate step, but it's one that's in the toolbox of public health authorities to do to compel disclosure of this data. Again, I'm not sure it's the right thing to do, but I think it's important to keep that context in mind as we think about how we want to structure and what limits we want to put on these applications. Absolutely, we got to limit their use to public health. Absolutely, we want to put serious constraints. And I agree with Ariel that it ought to be voluntary because as soon as you make it non-voluntary, although again, as that story from New York points out, they're, they've decided they're going to make uh, contact tracing information you know, subject to um, criminal sanctions if you don't uh, disclose it. Again, not in an app. But, but the point is, like, we're dealing with a really serious crisis. And I think we need to be a little bit, um, we, we need to think hard about whether and how the kinds of constraints that we fought hard and are still have not succeeded completely in the United States to put on the collection of consumer data, how much of those and how we might want to tweak those constraints in this context. Ariel, do you think we're even at that point in the conversation? Because we talk about the skepticism of public health officials. We saw that in Ohio with the former uh, state health director and Dr. Amy Acton uh, facing threats and, and other horrible things. And at that point, she was just presenting kind of basics of the coronavirus, basics of what we're dealing with. We're not even talking about privacy issues and different tactics, what technology to deploy. So, Ariel, do you think we're we're at a mature enough point, maybe, to have this conversation um, at least as deeply as we need to? I and I no, and I think we might be moving in the the wrong direction. Um, while in some surveys in, in May, Americans were more likely to to take to trust a contact tracing app if the CDC or public health officials was putting it out, um, versus like if a big tech company was putting it out. We've also seen between April and June the number of people who say they'd be willing to download a contact tracing app in America go from about fifty percent to twenty nine percent. So fewer people are willing to download them now. And privacy is a concern, but another concern is that they fear that the app would do nothing to stop the pandemic. Um, so I don't, I don't know that I've seen a lot of increase in in public government and health authorities in in general in the last couple of months, unfortunately. And so I don't know that we are unfortunately able to have that that conversation. And we see that some studies say that you know with a Bluetooth app something like 50, 60, 70% of individuals need to download it to make it really effective. Um, in places like Singapore, where they don't even you know, debate wearing masks, still only 20% of them have signed up for contact tracing apps. And I think one of the countries with the highest uptake is, is Iceland, which has something like 40% of people. So I can't imagine us getting anywhere close to that right now, unfortunately. I'm not sure if you know, but... Are these apps any more effective than traditional interview style contact tracing, or is it just a, another potential tool in the toolbox? So, so the the theory, Tony. So the Bluetooth ones, as Ariel just pointed out, 
Uh, I think recent studies have, have put it below 60%. 60 was the original uh, number that was out by one study, but they, they, they require mass adoption. And as I mentioned earlier, they're not actually making contact tracing more effective. Um, in theory, you get enough people doing it, you're, you're just augmenting the ability um, to identify people who might've been exposed outside of manual contact tracing and maybe doing it faster. That's the, that's the hope. Now, Bluetooth, the technology, there's all sorts of uh, issues with how reliable it is because what you're doing is you're, you're gauging using an algorithm based on a Bluetooth signal strength, how long you've been in contact and how far away you are. And, and there's been some really good studies demonstrating that that's, you know, that's really dependent on the environment. It depends on where your phone is. And so there's concerns about false, a uh, lot of concerns about false positives. Uh, GPS has similar um, reliability problems. And of course you have to have the app running uh, for it to work, but why it's potentially more effective is even if, as I said before, even if just one person's using it, if they are identified as positive, it can supplement the manual contact tracing process directly by providing a set of data points that the contact tracer can use to, to jog your memory. And so potentially to do it faster. Now, what it won't do is speed up contact tracing that much. It'll speed up like maybe that interview, but probably not because it'll add additional uh, things that the tracer has to go through, but it might make it better. Um, what the GPS apps and what ShareTrace is, has, uh, sorry, Safe has, is, has said they're gonna do is they wanna pair it with the Bluetooth so that you get kind of both worlds operating at once and you get this augmented uh, self-propagating system alongside a GPS system that is effective right away. Uh, and so the theory is it, it would, the Bluetooth, if it gets going, uh, would be, uh, would, would sort of widen that net of identification of people who are exposed and therefore be faster in shutting down hotspots. And then the GPS data over time, as it gets aggregated, could more quickly identify hotspots. But again, that requires a lot of people to be using it. Ariel, this is a, a big question. Uh, the question says, uh, you had mentioned that the percentage of adults willing to download apps has decreased. Do you believe that's motivated by fear? Uh, and also a big Second part of the question, how do you think this plays into this fear might play into the racial divide that we're seeing um, both in cases? Uh, because uh, we know communities of color have been hit particularly hard by the pandemic. Yeah, so I, I certainly think that the fact that fewer people are willing to download them now is probably motivated a little in part by fear. It's also motivated a little in part by just, we have more sort of maybe distance from where we were in April. And I'm sure everyone has kind of different reasons for this, um, but it's, it's true that communities of color and other groups that have been traditionally sort of more subject to discriminatory police surveillance and other things like that are received sort of unfair treatment, um, various health authorities and and doctors sort of over a historical period of time are, are less likely to want to trust a public health authority or less likely to want to trust the government in agreeing to sign up for any sort of surveillance seeming, even if it's not as bad as it seems, um, app. And also these are the same individuals who may be less likely to have a smartphone that has 
the newer operating system that's capable of, of running this sort of tracing app or um, low, low power sort of Bluetooth capabilities or data plans that they feel like they can use to be in contact with the health authority if they, if they do need to sort of report anything. Um, only, you know, 80, 81% of Americans own smartphones to begin with. And then you add in all these other requirements that they have to have um, in order to run these apps. And, and you run into a large population of people who might be unwilling or, or unable to, to download these apps. Brian, this question's for you. Uh, after Snowden, of course, we, we found out the depth of the uh, NSA's um, at least access to data, especially with um, uh, telephone networks. Um, in the in the firmware of our system, they also have a, a anti-terrorism program, which is like constantly going through phone calls looking for keywords and things. Is there any way that they can just do this on their own? Can they do contact tracing based on all of the access the NSA is already pulling from us and all of the data that's already kind of going into a black hole that we're not sure where? Uh, is that feasible or is this something else? Is this a different kind of use of data maybe? So, I, I mean, absolutely, the, the government could through various measures try to access much of the the data that we're talking about so this is data that's collected your gps data there's also the possibility though it's not particularly effective for contact tracing uh but to you know to trace location through uh cell phone uh triangulation um and and law enforcement and um you know the security establishment have you have have gotten access and can get access to that data in various ways. I, I I don't, I have not heard any even sort of conspiracy theories, although maybe I'm not on the right um, Twitter feeds, um, that that the US government's attempting to do anything like that to contact trace. And quite frankly, it just seems un, highly unlikely because contact tracing in the United States is decentralized to, to not only to states, but to counties uh, in most instances and cities. And so it would be just be, you know, it would just be really hard to do. Now, other countries, Israel uh, is a great example in South Korea, as well as China uh, are doing that. And so the South Korea system pairs um, an app that has Bluetooth capability uh, and some other notifications with um, a range of other techniques that the government's authorized to use um, in an, under an emergency law that they've uh, activated, where they're they're pulling together, as you mentioned at the top of the of the segment, a um, the credit card data, uh, CCTV captures to do a really compre comprehensive literal surveillance uh, to track people. Um, part it's sort of partially voluntary and partially involuntary. Uh, but it's much more aggressive. We're not seeing anything like that here. Um, and so, um, you know, in, I guess in theory, some capabilities exist, but I just don't see, I, I can't I, I can't imagine. And, and that's the big difference between this crisis and post 9-11. Um, there, you know, there's a similar concern that the crisis could be used to, as an excuse to expand surveillance technologies. And Ari, I'd be interested to hear your reaction from, you know, from, from, the folks you're talking to so far, I'm not, I'm not really seeing that um, any attempt to do that. And that's in part because the problem, although some, some societies have sort of treated uh, 
people who are who are positive and and the need to do this health surveillance in a similar way as as you know as they treat security generally, uh, we're not seeing that in the United States. And of course, the big difference is the only problem with being testing positive is that we need to quickly identify other people who might have been might have tested positive so we can slow the spread. It's not that we're concerned that you and your compatriots might be doing something uh, you know very dangerous that could harm people. Uh, in an intentional way. And that's just a very different context. And I want to thank the uh, person who asked that question. We're stopping conspiracy theories before they start. That's what we do. I'm not in, sure. It's, in it's these virtual forums. Right? No, no, that's that's why we brought it up. We're, we're giving the straight stuff. Uh, Ariel, did, did you want to comment on that, kind of the difference of our situation now to what we've seen before? I mean, I also haven't seen these conspiracy theories, and I probably am likely to see it on Twitter if that's running around among uh, privacy folks um, and tinfoil hat uh, constituents. But I, I think that there is a real concern among civil liberties um, folks that there will be mission creep here. Depending on how the apps are designed, if they're designed to collect your GPS location, for example, or even if they're designed to somehow keep a record of your contacts and who they are, there is a concern that law enforcement or other individual, other people or companies for corporate you know, advertising or surveillance could get a hold of this data. And, and once they get a hold of it, there's a concern that they're not, not gonna wanna give it up in the future, even after the public health crisis has passed. And a lot of people look to what happened after 9-11 as a, as a thing to keep in mind and to be wary of that whatever we're doing, and I think we do see that in a lot of the bills, whatever we're doing now like has to have, if we're doing some expansive, expansive data collection now or expanded data collection, it has to have some, some limits, some temporal limits that, that stop once this crisis is over. If you look at an authoritarian state, which is um, deploying facial recognition, uh, credit card searches, like you mentioned, Brian, is there any evidence that that's working any better than um, just physical testing and, and you know, not, not violating the privacy of every part of somebody's life? Is there any discernible benefit to that level of control from a from a governmental organization to get this data? Do we know yet? Uh, so I, I think the, the short answer is the jury is still out, although there were certainly early signs that um, South Korea in particular, uh, Singapore as well, you know, very rapidly got um, the spread under control in, in ways that even Europe um, wasn't able to do quite as quickly. Now, how much of that is attributable to the surveillance and how much of it is attributable to other things, uh, societal norms, ma what mask wearing, and other, you know, that's, that's way too early to tell. Um, you know, anecdotally, I, I, I actually, a, a colleague I work with at Case, uh, his family was from South Korea. He had to go back home. His, his father passed away. And I mean, you know, the, the, the story he told in terms of the level of um, the information he was getting and the, you know, he, he turned off his phone for too long while he was being quarantined. They, they quarantined everyone for 14 days and, and he immediately, his sister and his, and his mother and all his, his listed contacts were getting called by the authorities. You know, where is he, you know, is he still in isolation? Uh, and so, I mean, 
you can imagine that 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 probably works a little bit better than hey uh, you ought to try to self isolate and please try to wear a mask right in terms of stopping the spread. But again, it's it's probably too early early to tell. And the the, the bigger question is, you know, what are the trade offs, right? And um, certainly that level of intrusiveness, there's no way we would accept. And I mean, South Korea by all accounts is not an authoritarian regime, but certainly has a much uh, society, societal norms accept a much greater level of intrusion uh, on a regular basis. And, and, you know, the fact that they passed a law, which was after the MERS outbreak, that enabled this, um, this system to be in place, you know, is indicative, uh, I think. But, um, you know, there, there, there are significant trade-offs. And I agree with Ariel, in that context, where you allow that level of surveillance, uh, there's definitely uh, legitimate concerns about mission creep. Whereas when we're talking about just contact tracing, we're already collecting that information. Um, we're just doing it manually. And the question is, can the apps help? And, and the jury is very much out as to whether they will help, uh, the question you asked before. So um, there's lots of, of hard thinking to do. And then the other concern that we haven't really talked about, we probably won't have a lot of time though, is what Ariel raised about whether employers in particular or other services might mandate the use of something like this or or you know, relatedly, an antigen testing-based passport or something to be able to do things, and that that raises a whole different set of concerns because now you're expanding into other areas that go beyond traditional manual contract tracing, uh, the use of tech and the, the whether de facto or just because you need it to get your job. Um, sorry, sorry, whether the explicit or de facto because you need it to get your job or need it to go places. Um, requirement that you disclose information that you might not want to disclose, like like the fact that you've tested positive or other things. And that I think we haven't quite confronted yet because we're, the reopening has been too short. Ariel, you want to tackle that? I mean, how does labor law play into this and what you're re required to disclose? Uh, it seems like a diagnosis uh, wouldn't necessarily be uh, the business of an employer, but I'm not a lawyer. So. <laughs> well, I'm not a health lawyer, so I <laughs> or a labor lawyer. Um, but I think in general, you know, U.S. companies, um, especially, you know, non-governmental companies have a lot of leeway in sort of what they can require employees to do or ask for employees to do in terms of things like putting up cameras or even ask, asking you to wear some some bracelet to say when you're near other coworkers and sort of follow you around. You have, you know, not so much an expectation of, of privacy in, in general in your workplace. And I think I read that uh, PwC is developing a mobile app that it will provide to corporate clients, and it's also going to require it's like hundreds of thousands of uh, company employees to use. Uh, I read about a school in Ohio and New Albany that's going to employ sort of wearable bracelets for for its students. Amazon is is going above and beyond, and also going to be using cameras to monitor temperatures and quote other behaviors if you're wearing masks. Um, what else you're doing? So. I think we're going to see a lot more intrusive employee tracking and other kinds of tracking. Um, and in the, the jury's still out on whether or not that's going to actually help public health and how invasive it's going to be to privacy um, at the meantime. I, I'd be interested for both of you to to comment on this uh, as we're coming close to the close. But if you're out there and you have questions, please still do send them along. We'll try to, to fit them here. But um, 
all too often in the healthcare cost debate, we hear about administrative costs and how a move to a, um, a more digital record system uh, would help cut down on some of the administrative costs of healthcare. But that brings so many different issues, top of mind being security. Uh, ransomware, as we saw, uh, affected so many hospitals uh, recently, the NHS. I, I wonder if, uh, is it inevitable that we're going to have more and more health apps and apps that are being intertwined with our our uh, information in a in intimate way that we've not seen yet uh, to this degree. Is it unavoidable? And is the pandemic just kind of um, opening a Pandora's box or or? letting us know that Pandora's been here for a while. Um, uh, Brian, maybe you want to start and then Ariel. Yeah, so I'll try to be brief because I think Ariel might might be more of an expert on this than, than I am because she, you know, she, she doesn't track health, but sort of the, the creep of these apps. I, absolutely, the short answer. And what, what's interesting is, uh, you know, we're, we're sort of willingly uh, embracing that. I mean, I've got, I've got my smart watch that, you know, will, will tell me that my, not only my steps, my heart rate, um, and all sorts of things. Now I don't, I don't share that yet, but CSU wants me to share it to get my $200 bonus, uh, health credit bonus. And I'm sure the Cleveland clinic, you know, eventually would like to use it, especially with telehealth, you know, if it were, if, if the thing were accurate, which it's not on heart rate, um, you know, they might be able to, to use that, to be able to, to expand telehealth, in the way that they're trying to do now. In fact, I, I used a home blood pressure monitor the other day on a telehealth visit. Uh, and so there's good reasons to do it. Um, and then, the, you know, then the hard question becomes, you know, how much are we, we willing to share and, and, and what are the restrictions on exploiting that, that aggregation of data for things that we don't want to happen? And, and that's where, especially in the United States, we la we, you know, we've got, actually in the healthcare context, we really do have much stronger protections than in others, but we're still not as advanced as Europe. Ariel? Yeah, I would say in the, in the healthcare context, we have rules, but the healthcare context is, is limited to, you know, apps and things that you're using in certain ways with your doctor's office, um, with your, with hospitals. Um, if I download various health fitness apps, including sort of deeply personal ones kind of on my own, or maybe just because my employer suggested them and there's no involvement of medical professionals, really. Health privacy laws don't really apply to that stuff. And that's something that like the FDA and the FTC have both uh, tried, tried to look into, but there's a whole swath of things that you might think are health related that actually aren't covered by, by health privacy laws, unfortunately. Interesting. Uh, we were sent a link. A scene picked up a, a story from CNBC, actually, about a study conducted by J.P. Morgan, which was looking at uh, credit card use. And the quote here is looking across categories of card spending. We find the level of spending in restaurants three weeks ago was the strongest predictor of the rise in new virus cases over the subsequent three weeks. Uh, so there's an example right there of using data that's out there and then trying to uh, tie it um, uh, to our health situation. Um, we are coming to a close here, but I want to give both of you an opportunity um, to 
either address something we haven't gotten to, this is such a big issue, or maybe just leave our viewers with uh, something in mind, because I don't think this is going away, and we're going to hear a lot more about contact tracing as this pandemic uh, progresses. But uh, Ariel, maybe you want to start with final thoughts, and then Brian. Sure. I guess I would just say as a final thought, you know, as with the coronavirus in general, I think there are still so many critical unanswered questions about contact tracing apps and other sort of digital health measures uh, meant to assist us here. We don't know if they're worth the cost. We don't know if they're effective. We don't know how much of the population is able to use them. We don't know how they're going to disproportionately affect uh, people who might need their help the most. And, you know, I certainly don't want those communities to not don't download an app, not be telling um, medical professionals that they're ill and then sort of be further underserved in terms of, of resources. Um, we don't know what's going to stop the use of this data if, if companies like Google or Apple decide to change the rules in the future. So given our concerns about mission creep and this technology, we need a lot more questions answered before I think the American public is going to be comfortable downloading these sufficiently to have them be effective. So, uh, Tony, I'll, I'll second everything that RL said. And so it's perfectly fine. And I think legitimate to be skeptical of these apps and no need to rush into them. But please, please, if you get a call from the from Cuyahoga County, from Cleveland, wherever you're living, and it's the public health authority, and they say, hey, we need to find out who you've been in contact with uh, to try to prevent the spread of this disease. Please don't confuse contact tracing with contact tracing apps and please participate uh, and help uh, with that process because we really, really need it and it's gonna be critical to help stop the spread of this disease. So don't download the app, but do answer the call. Make sure it is the public health authority because there's some scams out there. Uh, but if it is, please cooperate. That's great. Final thoughts. Thanks so much. Uh, I do have a, a short script to uh, to close here. Thank you all, uh, viewers, uh, wherever you may be in your uh, undisclosed locations. Thanks for uh, joining us here for this conversation, our virtual Happy Dog Takes on the World forum. Uh, thanks to Ariel Fox Johnson, Senior Counsel for Policy and Privacy for Common Sense Media. Thanks for being here. Also, thanks to Brian Ray, Director of the Center for Cybersecurity, Privacy Protection at the Cleveland Marshall College of Law. Thank you both for uh, being here. A great conversation. Happy Dog Takes on the World is a collaborative effort between the City Club of Cleveland, the Cleveland Council on World Affairs, the Happy Dog. We hope to be there uh, soon. Northeast Ohio Consortium for Middle Eastern Studies and IdeaStream. We do appreciate all of our partners. City Club virtual forums are sponsored by Bank of America, the Cleveland Foundation, the George Gunn Foundation, Key Bank, Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, Nordson, and PNC, and many generous members, sponsors, and donors. I am Tony Ganser. Our forum is now adjourned. And listen, thank you so much. Thanks, Tony. Thank you. Good night, everyone.